Welcome back to the JPO Podcast. I'm Carter Clement, one of your co-hosts from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And first and foremost, here in the time of coronavirus, we hope everyone out there is staying healthy, happy, and hopefully somehow productive. Today, we are covering the April 2020 print issue of the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics. But before we jump in, I am excited to announce that over the next month, we are going to bring you material from the POSNA annual meeting that has unfortunately been canceled because of the pandemic. Specifically, we're going to be hosting researchers and session moderators from the meeting to discuss the highlights of some of the research that would have otherwise been presented. So please stay tuned for that over the next few weeks. And now with no further ado, to start things off with today's material, I'll hand things over to Craig Lauer, one of my co-hosts, to discuss an article that I think really moves the conversation forward on hip capsulotomies to relieve intercapsular pressure in conditions like unstable skiffy, femoral neck fractures, etc. This is Craig Lauer coming from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, next, we will discuss an article entitled Increased Hip Intracapsular Pressure Decreases Perfusion of the Capital Femoral Epiphysis in a Skeletally Immature Porcine Model from lead author Sulil Upasani from Rady Children's and senior author Tim Schrader from Children's Orthopedics. So as a bit of background, increased intracapsular hip pressure is thought to be one of the possible etiologies of femoral head avascular necrosis after intraarticular proximal femur fractures or acute slipped capital femoral epiphysis. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the relationship in real time between intraarticular hip pressure and epiphyseal perfusion pressure, including its dependency on skeletal maturity using a porcine model. So I'm joined on the line today by Dr. Upasani from Rady Children's. Salil, thanks for being here. Thanks, Craig. Happy to be here. What led you to ask this question and what specifically led you to think about these parameters with regards to age of the patient and physis maturity? Yeah, so actually we came up with the study idea about three or four years ago when uh, Tim Schrader was out in San Diego visiting our program. And uh, we were going through bone board and we were showing some of our skiffy cases and he chimed in uh, talking about his uh, technique of doing in-situ screw fixation and measuring the perfusion pressure with the um, intracranial pressure monitor and doing a, a capsulotomy using a cob in the front of the neck to improve the perfusion in cases where he wasn't able to detect any flow during the surgery. Uh, so during that conference, Dr. Mubarak was uh, kind of questioning the methodology with which he was uh, measuring those pressures. And so after the conference, we decided to set up a animal model to see if we could kind of replicate what was happening in those patients and to see if we could quantify the differences in perfusion with uh, changes in intracapsular pressure. Dr. Mubarak, always the critic. Um, could you summarize the uh, the main findings? Yeah, this experimental design, we basically had uh, seven pigs, three of them which were thought to be skeletally mature or older, four that were young. Um, basically, we set up a model where we put a screw from the proximal femur into the epiphysis. We had a needle inside the capsule and then a catheter to or basically inject fluid into the capsule and where we could measure the pressure through the needle. And then we had passed a uh, intracranial pressure monitor into the epiphysis to measure the perfusion pressure. And basically, as we increased the volume and the pressure in the capsule in a linear fashion, in the younger pigs, the perfusion just flattened out uh, pretty consistently in all the trials compared to the older pigs that maintained uh, the pulse pressure in the epiphysis uh, 
despite how much fluid we injected into the capsule. What led to the suspicion that they would be different based off of age initially? And then I guess you can get a little bit more into your findings and your results as to what led to that difference yeah. between age? Yeah, so our anatomy teaching is that the proximal femoral creates a barrier for blood vessels to go from the metaphysis into the epiphysis. And so our epiphysis is very dependent on flow either through the ligamentum teres when we're infants uh, to the retinacular vessels, you know, into childhood. Uh, these pigs actually don't ever formally close the proximal femoral physis. Um, but we were able to do some histology sections to show that there were blood vessels that were traversing the physis, even in the pigs. Uh, so basically intraosseous flow from the metaphysis into the epiphysis. And um, so I think that's what created the difference in the findings that we observed, that in the skeletally immature pigs, they were extremely dependent on the blood flow coming through the retinacular vessels versus the more mature pigs had a secondary source of blood flow through the metaphysis. Um, and so they could maintain their perfusion of the epiphysis. How, how much do you think what you found in the pigs would be applicable to, let's say, human or specifically a pediatric uh, population? Are the pressures that you put in the joint, are those physiologic? Do you think in your, in your mind this solidifies that this is a real etiology uh, of avascular necrosis or that's still theoretical at this point. Yeah, you know, I think um, the exact pressures inside of the hip capsule at baseline and in pathologic states, such as with an intracapsular fracture, I don't think that's very, you know, clearly known. There have been other authors that have done work along this line, including Martin Beck from uh, Switzerland and uh, Jose Herrera Soto from Florida where they looked at pressures uh, in patients with skiffies. I think Martin was looking at it in patients that were getting femoral acetabular impingement surgery with surgical dislocations. And I think it is known that there's a pretty clear linear relationship between the volume of fluid inside of the joint and the pressure inside of the joint. Um, so in this kind of animal model, we were just trying to increase the pressure to as high as we you know, could with the model setup that we had, uh, especially in the mature pigs, to see if at some extremely high level, if we could block off the perfusion. And so theoretically, tamponade of the vessels can happen and decrease perfusion pressure. We, we don't know physiologically whether that's actually occurring, but it seems very reasonable. I just want to kind of applaud your group. I think that this is a really, a really good example of something that it's difficult to prove looking at clinical studies, whether you know, releasing the tamponade or decompressing the capsule in an urgent fashion makes a difference. You know, we've talked about those meta-analyses that kind of point to uh, little effect of those sorts of measures. But I think this is a great example of taking a clinical question back to the bench and seeing if the science is there and the data is there and then using that then to kind of guide your your treatment going forward. So with that as kind of the setup, um, what have been your takeaways? Has this data changed what you do uh, clinically? And what do you think our listeners should take away from this and do going forward when they're dealing with acute skiffy or femoral neck fractures? Yeah, you know, I think <clears throat> this data has uh, affected my clinical practice. Uh, before this, 
I was kind of using those meta-analyses to support, you know, not necessarily urgently taking patients to the operating room. I think this has very clearly shown me that especially in immature hips, it's extremely important to completely decompress uh, the hip capsule and um, kind of do everything within our capabilities to uh, restore the blood flow to the femoral epiphysis. I think like you alluded to in the introduction, there's multiple other reasons that can cause femoral head avascular necrosis, like kinking of those retinacular vessels or actually tearing of those vessels. So I feel like if we can acutely address the increased capsular pressure, so I would say within about six hours or so, if you could take the patient uh, to the OR to perform a nice open reduction, decompress the capsule, and obtain good fixation. Uh, I think that at least sets the patient up uh, to try to avoid avascular necrosis. Well, thank you again for your time. This is Salil Pasni from Radio Children's Hospital. Thanks, Craig. I appreciate it. Thank you, Craig. And thank you, Salil, as usual. That is some very informative research and really uh, inspiring research effort by your team over there at Radius. And next we go to Julia for a conversation with one of the featured authors about an article on missed radial head dislocations and how to avoid this problem. Hi, JPO listeners. This is Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Chital Parikh from Cincinnati Children's Hospital, who is here to discuss with us his paper, Misdiagnosis and Acute Management of Radial Head Dislocation with Plastic Deformation of the Ulna in Children. Dr. Parikh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Julia. So to start off, could you give us a little background on what prompted you to investigate this particular misdiagnosis and its management? Sure. So uh, first, I would like to acknowledge my co-authors, Dr. Vivek Singh and Dr. Sukhalyan Day, who were part of this study. So this happened in 2018 that we were um, in the clinic and we encountered two cases of missed Montesia in that one week. And both had the similar pattern, which is an anterior head, uh, anterior radial head dislocation with ulnar bowing, but without any obvious fracture. And it wasn't just missed in the ED by the ED physician, but even the radiologist report uh, failed to mention the radial head dislocation. We all are aware of the consequences of missed radial head dislocation and the complications associated with chronic radial head dislocations. We thought out to calculate the rate of missed injuries at our institution, as well as to describe the early management of this uh, particular pattern of uh, Montagia fractures. Great. And could you tell us what you found? Um, Specifically, is there a time-sensitive component to a missed radial head dislocation? Uh, Yeah. So we identified about 112 patients with Montagia fracture dislocation, out of which there were 18 who had radial head dislocation with ulnar bowing, but no fracture. So 13 of these 18 were initially missed in the emergency department. Not all of them were missed at our institution. Some of them were from an outside institution and they were missed. But that accounts accounts to about 72% of these injuries to be missed, which is pretty high. We did not expect this when we started doing the study. As far as the early management is concerned, 11 of these 18 patients, we were able to treat them with close reduction and cast. Their mean time of diagnosis was around three days after their injury. And then seven out of 18 patients had to be operated upon, and the mean time from injury was around 13 days. Of those uh, seven that required surgery, six required open reduction of the radial head. And for the treatment of ulnar bowing, we had to perform close reduction in two cases, intermedial nailing in three, and ulnar osteotomy with plate fixation in two cases. Now, the time difference between the cases that were treated conservative versus those that that were treated operatively 
it speaks to the time sensitivity of making this diagnosis. That is, for each day that the treatment was delayed, the odds for failure of close reduction increased by about 12%. So we think that one week appears to be a threshold, that if you can get the patient prior to that, you can um, uh, attempt a non-operative treatment, it will be successful, but after one week, it appears that patients may need surgical treatment. So it is a time-sensitive issue. Absolutely. That's really helpful to know. So what did you determine about the characteristics of ulnar bowing in this population? So we uh, evaluated the ulnar bowing, uh, both the location of the maximum bow as well as the magnitude of the uh, ulnar bow on a lateral radiograph. Um, And the maximum ulnar bow was generally located in the middle third of the ulnar. And uh, this wasn't different between the two groups, that is the non-operative and the operative group. Similarly, we did not find any difference in the magnitude of the bowing between the two groups. We, you know, we initially thought that uh, the patients who would fail conservative treatment may have higher degrees of ulnar bowing, but this wasn't true. You know, there were no differences between the two groups. Uh, fortunately, at the end of treatment, all the patients had excellent um, PM elbow scores, um, and as long as the radial head is reduced, these patients can be expected to have great outcomes. Awesome. Thank you. And what are ways that orthopedists can work to minimize these misdiagnoses? Do you have any guidance for collaborating with the emergency department or with radiology? Uh, Yeah. So the most important and surprising finding uh, that we talked about was the rate of misdiagnosis, which was 72% at initial presentation. So we did share these findings with our ED ED and uh, radiology colleagues. And there are three important recommendations uh, to avoid missing this injury. So the first and foremost is a complete physical examination of the child's arm. A child who presents with a forearm injury or a vague pattern that you're not really sure what's going on, it's critical to evaluate the arm in its entirety from the uh, wrist all the way up. And the most common clinical findings in these patients were you know, some mild tenderness, sometimes swelling, restricted motion, and a lot of patients had anxiety or apprehension when we tried to examine the elbow. So I can't stress this enough that a a complete physical examination of the child's arm is necessary. The second thing is uh, that based on the clinical suspicion, if you think there is an elbow injury, then we should get a dedicated elbow radiograph and should not not try to evaluate an elbow on a forearm x-ray. So that's the second important point. And the third thing is that on the elbow x-ray, we need to evaluate the radiocapitular line. When we spoke with our radiologists, after you know, bringing to their attention the cases that were missed, now they have included the radiocapitular line as one of the heading in the reporting template so that they have to evaluate and comment on the radiocapitular relationship on all elbow radiographs. So this would avoid missing these injuries in the future. Wonderful. That's a, an amazing summary. Thank you so much for sharing your findings with us. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you, Julia, and thank you, Dr. Parikh. I really like that systematic approach, especially asking the radiology department to build in an analysis of the radiocapitellar joint into all of their elbow x-ray templates. And next, we're going back to Craig for a very practical article about a point-of-care test for septic hips that could really change our practice in a meaningful, tangible way. Hello, and this is Craig Lauer from University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Next, we'll discuss the article entitled, The Utility of the Leukocyte Esterase Strip Test and the Diagnosis of Pediatric Septic Arthritis. This is from lead author Syed Mohammad Javad Mordazavi and senior author Taghi Baghdadi from Tehran, Iran. How many times have you been 
stuck in the operating room after aspirating a hip joint and you're waiting on the results before deciding whether to proceed with an irrigation abridement or whether to send the patient back to the PACU. So the problem with diagnosing pediatric septic arthritis is that most of the tests are not point of care and they don't produce rapid results or they're not accurate. The leukocyte esterase strip test may be a solution to this as that it's been validated for adults and periprosthetic infections. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the performance of the leukocyte esterase strip test and diagnosis of pediatric septic arthritis. This was a prospective study of patients hospitalized for suspicion of septic arthritis. After arthrocentesis, the aspirate was tested with the leukocyte esterase strip test, also sent for cell count and culture. They excluded cancer patients, immunocompromised patients, or those with known rheumatologic conditions, and they had 25 patients ultimately satisfy their inclusion criteria. As for the results, 19 of these 25 joints were considered septic given their predefined criteria. As for the test performance, 19 out of the 19 with septic arthritis actually had a positive leukocyte esterase test. Only one out of the six who were found to not have septic arthritis tested positive on the leukocyte esterase strip test. As for the test characteristics, this boils down to a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 83%. For their population, it was a positive predictive value of 95%, negative predictive value of 100%. Of note, they also had 25 patients with DDH who they got synovial fluid samples with during an open reduction procedure and tested them all, and they all tested negative for leukocyte esterase. So their conclusions are that the leukocyte esterase strip test appears to have very good results, at least in this population and setting. It may eventually be a useful rule-out test, and this is consistent with its application in the adult studies. The limitations here are that this was a very high suspicion group. Obviously, 19 out of the 25 suspected actually had septic arthritis, so if you're using this as a screening test in the ER, you may have different test characteristics. Also, they note that their population in Tehran uh, may be different from other populations, um, and a lot of the septic arthritis they see is a more delayed presentation and more rampant disease process. So the takeaway here is that leukocyte esterase is a rapid, inexpensive, and easily performed test that may have value in the diagnosis of septic arthritis. It may facilitate decision-making. It takes a little bit more work to figure out exactly how to apply it, but most likely it will be a rule-out test for use in the operating room for patients who just had an aspiration. Uh, the role for leukocyte esterase in situations with a lower pretest probability is not fully defined. Thank you, Craig, and thank you to the research team in Turan. Clearly, the diagnosis of septic hips is something that we still need a better solution for, and while bigger studies are needed, hopefully this is setting us on the right path. And lastly, moving on to wrap up things for this month, I'll hand it back over to Julia for some new research on Madelung's deformity and Vickers ligament. This is your co-host Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm here today with a summary of an article out of Texas Scottish Rite in Dallas by Dr. Scott Oishi and colleagues. The article is entitled, Long-Term Outcomes Following Vickers Ligament Release and Growth Modulation for the Treatment of Madelung Deformity. Madelung deformity is described as radial bowing, ulnar head prominence, and volar carpal subsidence, and is caused by ulnar-sided distal radial physial arrest in combination with an aberrant ligament tethering the volar radius to the carpus, known as Vickers ligament. This deformity is very rare, but is more common in females, can be bilateral, and also may be associated with some genetic conditions. Patients often present with pain or cosmetic complaints. If there is minimal growth remaining at the time of presentation, Treatment is aimed at corrective osteotomies. However, distal radial physiolysis and Vickers ligament release has been suggested to prevent the need for future osteotomy. 
To study the long-term results of this procedure, the authors performed a retrospective review of patients with mouth lung deformity between 1994 and 2005. They identified six patients with eight wrists, with an average age at initial presentation of 11.4 years. Pain was the most common complaint, followed by deformity. These patients underwent distal radial physiolysis with fat grafting and Vickers ligament release at an average age of 12 years, and final follow-up averaged 10.6 years. The authors discovered that seven of eight wrists were pain-free at one year post-op. At final follow-up, six of eight were pain-free. Range of motion remained similar between preoperative visit and long-term follow-up. Interestingly, there was an initial improvement in motion present at one year, but this was not sustained at long-term follow-up. The authors noted significant progression in lunate subsidence at final follow-up, but only minimal changes in ulnar tilt and palmar carpal displacement. Two of six patients ultimately underwent subsequent procedures. One had a radial dome osteotomy and another had an ulnar shortening osteotomy, both for recurrent pain after index surgery. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that distal radiophysiolysis and Vickers ligament release relieves pain and preserves range of motion in skeletally immature patients with this deformity with an acceptable rate of subsequent surgery. Well, thank you, Julia. Thank you to all of our listeners. That is it for this month. If you have not checked out the other POSNA podcast, it's called Interview with a PD Pod. And about every month, Nick Fletcher from Atlanta sits down with another one of the leaders in our field to pick their brains. The most recent episode featured Dr. Will McKenzie from Nemours, and upcoming episodes are going to feature Noel Larson and Min Coker talking about their careers, their research, their perspectives, and more. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen. Thank you again, and stay safe out there.